0: and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson.
1: And I'm William Powheida.
0: Today on the show, we have two great guests. Uh, We have Michael Shaw, who is an artist and the host of the long-running LA-based podcast, The Conversation. Uh, We also have Carolina Miranda here, who was our first guest on Explain Me and is here for the relaunch. She is a staff writer for the LA Times, who covers all kinds of uh culture. So we're glad to have you both on the show.
2: Thank hey. you for having us. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Patty.
0: Oh, sorry. So I was just going to say that you know, we wanted the focus of this podcast to be a little bit more LA centric, which is part of the reasons we had uh both of you on the show. Um William, do you uh want to talk a little bit uh, about uh you know, why we wanted this LA uh, sort of centered show and um what kind of things you can expect from the podcast.
1: Yeah, well, I uh, you know, last during the last episode we spoke with my art dealer Magda Sowen and Jonathan Schwartz from Atelier 4, and we got a kind of New York perspective. And I haven't heard a whole lot of what's going on in LA, and I was very curious how the pandemic has affected the art scene out in Los Angeles. And, you know, I thought of um, Michael because we had been talking, we had just participated in a kind of store to own art project that uh, I put together. So Michael now has some of my work out in LA and I couldn't make it onto his podcast, The Conversation. And I I realized we hadn't spoken, um, you know, I I was on his podcast in December of 2014. So it's been quite a while. And I thought he'd be great to come on to our show and give us his perspective on what's happening in LA. And of course, Carolina, um, I thought she would be wonderful to kind of give us um, you know, her take on what's happening in the LA gallery scene. And um what's sort of perfect is that she's got a, a story that will be out by the time our podcast airs uh on the kind of state of things in the Los Angeles gallery scene. Um and you know. Before we dive into the kind of art industry stuff um, we're we're curious you know how how has the pandemic a month into it just you know how's it affected your lives um, what's going on in your 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 lives right now and uh, Michael or carolina, you're welcome to kind of jump in and um,
2: talk to us on about- you want to go first
3: uh- Sure. Um I think, you know, like everyone else, I am mostly at home. Uh I have done a couple of stories that have required um reporting out in the world um for which I show up gloved and masked and uh, we do, we show, we did an artist portfolio. Uh, at the LA Times in the first couple of weeks after the quarantine started. And and uh, we did a series of visits to artist studios to see sort of what artists were up to um, as the quarantine and, and the, as the pandemic unfolded. Um, and it was definitely... A very different way of reporting a story. We had to very clearly know ahead of time what we were doing. We didn't go inside anybody's studios. We only spoke to them outside. We photographed them through windows and through doors. Um, I think definitely the pandemic is creating a visual aesthetic <laughs> to, you know, uh, journalistically to go with it. Um, but by and large, I've been at home and in good health. And thankfully, I have a garden. So I feel incredibly fortunate uh in all of this
1: no oh, excellent you
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, the other thing i did notice um that you i think it was either yesterday or today ret- uh, retweeted uh something about the uh, um subscribing to the la times and not being uh something that's kind of important to do right now i understand there are, are there are furloughs at the at the LA Times, is that correct?
3: Yes, yes. The, I'm sorry, that was the second part of the question you had mm-hmm. asked of how has this affected our sector. Um, there have been furloughs at the LA Times and there have been pay cuts. For now, those furloughs and pay cuts had, have affected management and the business side. No journalists have been furloughed. Um, partly this is because we have a new newsroom union and they can't uh, they can't do any of that without negotiating with the union. The union is currently in conversation with management about what cost savings we might be able um, to undertake in a way so that people don't lose their jobs. Um, You know, this has been really devastating financially for the paper. Uh, We, you know, as of last year, after we were taken over by the new owners in 2018, our separation from trunk put us in the red. And so last year we were in the red and then this year we were still going to be in the red, but less in the red. We were, we were making some gains and the pandemic has just, scrapped all of that um as you know advertising has pretty much fallen off a cliff and we've lost a number of other revenue streams that uh, newspapers now use to make money things like uh events uh the la times book club uh speaker series that we have i was actually all set to do a talk with rebecca solnit um on her with her new book uh when the quarantine hit um we have a travel program, we have a, a food uh, festival, we have a, a major book festival and a book awards. And all of those things um, that are essentially money makers for the paper have been shut down as a result of the stay at home order. So the paper has really been hit hard. And I mean, we're hoping that we can emerge from this and we're hoping, um, that we can do it in a prudent way in which nobody loses their jobs, but definitely the months ahead are going to be difficult
1: all right well I didn't mean to, we didn't mean to jump into the industry side of things, but Michael, how has the um, uh, you know the pandemic impacted your life what's your what's your life like now a
2: month into this? It's been a sort of gradual increase of intensity, I guess is one way to put it um I mean, I'm pretty isolated to begin with, uh, as a, I think a lot of many artists are. I don't know what percentage. I'd be interested to hear your guys' take on that. But, um, <clears throat> but my work has, you know, obviously I, I do in person, very part time work, and that's obviously gone remote. So, um, and and there's less of it. So my income is definitely taking a cut. Um, and we'll talk about my impending studio loss later. But um, uh, I, I'd say there there are pro, there is silver lining for sure. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoy or appreciate, I should say, is the quiet. Um, it's it's something that I am a huge fan and appreciator of, and I know. I anticipate people hearing that and going, well, why do you live in a city if you're into quiet? You know, well, I want to have both things at the same time. You know, I want to have cultural ac- and city access and quiet. I don't know if that's ridiculous to ask, but um, at night especially, um, you know, you can sit there and hear, you know, the hum of your refrigerator, you know, um, and nothing more. And I, I, I really love that. So, and, you know, and then being out on the road, I haven't, done much in the way of freeway um, driving, but i I, I mean to, um, but being out on the road you know with so much less traffic and then, as my girlfriend pointed out earlier, just a little while earlier, the sky today is a blue that is unlike you know it has the clarity that you may we may never have seen, right, because of this lack of um, air pollution, and um, you know it's subtle what you see an, on a normal basis, because it's kind of like a whitish kind of tint to the blue. But now that whitish tint is gone. So, um, so those are the things I really appreciate. Um, and uh, let's see what else. Um, yeah, I, I go to the farmer's market, my local farmer's market every Sunday. And uh, no farmer's market last week because of Easter. So I got a break from it. But every week, it has gotten more intense in terms of you know, what you have access to, and the last time, of course, everybody was wearing masks prior to that, you know, there it was only, so the first time I went, it was like, oh, look at these people with their masks, how, you know, how mm-hmm. precautious they are, and maybe even paranoid, you know, but we, we, so some of us, I think, are going through that cycle of, What's the deal with the, you know, the gear? And then now it's like standard, standard issue for all of us. So. I mean,
1: it's, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I feel like we might be, you know, speaking of like the idea of lag in recording on a Zoom call, you know, how, uh, when did this all, like the um, wearing masks in public start for you all? Because I feel like, you know, Patty and I might be like two weeks or three weeks, you know into. Um, more extreme measures, I would say, around social distancing. It sounds like it just sort of hit, you know, uh, the farmer's market, for example, last week for you.
2: It became a requirement, I understand, in stores just sometime last week. Yeah, we're on we're on Wednesday, so maybe was it like last Thursday or Friday or something like that, Carolina, that became a requirement. And, you know, and so I was at Trader Joe's, let's say, a week and a half ago, and like 90% of the people had masks and there were a few people who didn't. And, and it, you know, I kind of looked at them and was thinking, what's the deal? You know, and then I was thinking, well, you're younger, so I guess it's okay, right? But then, of course, that's wrong because, you know, anyway, you, you see where I'm going with that. Um, so, yeah, that that I think it's been, you know, a month ago, it was, It, it, it like I said originally, it's, it's all been very, you know, sort of, in phases and now we're at the if you're not wearing a mask you know what's wrong with you phase whereas it was kind of flipped a month ago or so yeah
3: i mean i think i think la has a geographic and urban advantage in this in that we are not as crowded on top of each other people aren't as dependent on public transportation things are more spread out and atomized and while that's an urban feature that is you know heavily our car-centric urban nature is regularly critiqued i think in the event of this crisis it has helped kind of keep people apart but yeah it has been this slow rolling i mean the governor of california was one of the first to issue a lockdown so we've been under quarantine for some time but the and and you've seen people wearing masks all along but it's definitely become a you know you you now feel the social pressure to wear one on top of the fact that it's now required by the city
0: yeah and william what like we talked two weeks ago and you had described williamsburg where your studio is as being um a, a place i guess where uh social distancing was not let's say a priority as compared to maybe some of the other neighborhoods uh, like queens where i live um how has that evolved at all like how has your life changed since in the the last two weeks.
1: My my studio uh, is in Bushwick, and it's right across from Maria Hernandez Park. And the things that have changed in the last two weeks, um, they closed down the dog park. Um, People were not socially distancing while they watched their dogs, so that's shut down. They locked up and closed the handball courts, the basketball courts, took off the nets from the volleyball courts. Um, Just to keep people from clustering and grouping, um, because people were still playing handball without gloves on. Uh, It just seemed a little bit crazy. Um, Otherwise, you know, there's still a constant flow of people. Um, The lines at the grocery stores have gotten longer. You know, it seems like businesses are taking that more seriously to limit the amount of people into our tiny little New York grocery stores, where you can really only fit, like, say, a a mini cart down an (laughs) aisle. (laughs) I I, I can imagine going to a Ralph's right now or something and and seeming like, you know, uh, a Mall of America scale. Right. Um, So, you know, we're waiting in lines longer. Um, There are just, you know, more things being closed down. So people are sort of forced and, you know, keep their distance from each other. Um, But that that sort of the changes have been sort of subtle. You know, there hasn't been anything sort of major uh, in the last two weeks.
0: Yeah, I would say the same as probably, it's probably quite similar for me. I have noticed um, in my neighborhood, uh, maybe two weeks ago, people were taking the uh, social distancing very seriously. uh, Because we are, Woodside is just one neighborhood away from Jackson Heights, which is sort of the epicenter of um, where the coronavirus has uh, really sort of taken hold um so people have been very fearful of that and it's very noisy in this neighborhood meaning that there is a sort of constant whirl of ambulance um sirens and things like that um but over the last uh week or so i, I would even say like it, it's really more like the last two days like the the number of sirens seems to be fewer and but also that seems to be sort of coincided with people feeling a little bit more relaxed in public. Um, Meaning the social distancing, not so much, you know, it's uh, people are a little less afraid. Um, And I think that's kind of natural, Um, but that makes me a little nervous for all of us here because um, it seems like there's still plenty of opportunities to get this thing.
2: Yeah. Addy and William, can I ask you a question?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, how cognizant are you of New Yorkers of great means leaving the city, escaping to their second homes, or what have you?
1: So I, I only know a few people that have, um, <clears throat> let's say, a, a country rental upstate. And I can really only think of one artist couple that it just sort of decamped to that space. Um, I don't know too many people that have uh, just abandoned the city. Most of my community of artists um, are still here in Brooklyn and in Queens. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not too aware of how many people have just, you know, have empty apartments in Manhattan or Williamsburg. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have a lot of perspective on that, I would say. Patty, do you mm-hmm. know?
0: Well, I would say that, so, um you know, my partner, Steven, works at the New York Times. And I would say that a large number of the people that he knows um, there and that we know together um, are not staying in the city. They may have like a, a home that they actually own up in either Connecticut or the Catskills or you know wherever it is. Um, and I will admit to feeling some amount of... I don't know what the word is, perhaps just, um, it's a little unseemly, but jealousy mm-hmm, <laughs> for mm-hmm. people to have the means to get, uh, to just feel, it's not just like feel safer, but like go somewhere, you know, like at the end of the day, like every day, Steven says to me like, Oh, I'm, I love Queens, but like, I want to get out of here. I feel really stuck here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, Quite share that feeling just because I, for whatever reason, have the ability to like live entirely inside my head. And so, like, the like wherever it is I am, like, just is almost inconsequential to me. But, um, but like, I could see like it definitely has an impact on me that somebody else feels that way. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I, and I guess I feel too like um I would like more a more of a feeling of safety than I currently have, you know, like you you can't if you get sick for any reason, like it's now dangerous to go to the hospital that mm. that means you can't get sick,
1: mhm, yeah, I have some friends who you know are not willing to ride their bikes from their homes to their studios just because it can be dangerous and they don't want to end up in the emergency room from a bicycle accident, you know, at this point. Right. Right. A lot of behaviors have changed, but you know, it is interesting. I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast is this, you know, intersection of art and money and politics and the situation where the collector class or very wealthy people have second homes, they have the mobility and freedom to just kind of vacate. Um, You know, that, that's something that, i don't know it maybe it brings it back around to um, just housing in general and the kind of cancel rent movement um, the idea that you know if this continues there're going to be a lot of people that are not going to be able to just suddenly make three months of rent appear uh, when this social distancing ends and so uh we didn't We didn't get to ask you the question yet, Michael, but you know how how has the pandemic affected your Um, artistic practice and your livelihood Uh, you know you talked a little bit about it but i think we want to give you uh, that same question that carolina got you know how's it affecting um,
2: the industry yeah it it uh badly um so my studio which i've had for almost eight years um this may be very well maybe my last month in it um it actually was kicking in before the shit hit the fan because so it's a weird it's a one-story building in Culver City That's sort of this. It's a very unusual rabbit warren of Spaces and the space that I've been in is um, a weird loft-like space and my section of it is the equivalent of a, you know Maybe two-car garage. It's barely um, probably a little smaller than that, but um I've shared it with either one or two people over the course of that time. And it late for the last five years almost, it's been three of us. And one of those three gave notice back in February before the shit hit the van. And, um, and we were on the verge of maybe you know, some very promising candidates just as sort of things kicked in. So this one woman who, was, uh, who runs an art program for kids was going to expand and add this space in Culver City, potentially, she seemed very promising. And all of a sudden, when the day that she was going to come see it, um, you know, the parents were freaking out, right? So long story, semi-short, my studio mate uh, who has left, who's on the lease with me, she gave notice on April 1 because she wanted to go buy the books, and she didn't want to be on the hook, you know, for rent beyond, you know, next month and i joined her like a couple of days later just to be on the safe side i'm continuing to look for people but you know who is how many people are willing to you know sign a lease for a studio space let alone kind of a very unconventional one now right so it ultimately comes down to money i mean i'm and this is like so my situation is always on the verge of collapsing, I see in retrospect, or you know, with a little more clarity. It's I make very little money, I keep my expenses extremely low, you know, and then you get hit with this and you have a reduction in income. You don't have a studio mate, you know, the studio is going to potentially go away. I'm I'm trying to work some weird angles uh with it. And I'm I'm going to have a I'm terrified of the phone call that I'm going to have with the property manager probably tomorrow who is I don't think you'll listen to this he's a he's a big asshole, um, very unsympathetic um, he is represents the spaces to this reformed temple jewish temple which is which owns the building and they basically don't want a deal, so they have a property manager he's the second one since i've been there, you know maintaining the spaces quote unquote maintaining the spaces and collecting rent from everybody um I actually went over him and talked to this guy at the temple, the the operations manager, and tried to ask him for, you know, this is an unprecedented time. Can you help us out? Um, My studio mate actually and I actually sent an email to him and the rabbi, which we did not get a response to. So I followed up with a call and he basically said, you know, yeah, I get that it's unprecedented, but I need to hear from the property manager. So Mm that's what the phone call is gonna be like. And I, I just kind of keep imagining how I, it's gonna go in my, in my mind. And I, you know, I don't wanna delude myself into thinking it goes well. So I have basically various versions of how badly it's gonna go. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, stop me anytime. That's, I could go on, but that's, that's the studio situation essentially.
1: So far in New York City, um, <clears throat> there, no one can be evicted. And I don't know if that extends to commercial leases, but there hasn't really been any rent relief, right patty for New York City commercial tenants or artists um you know we're we're still trying to push that, and it seems like Governor is not really into uh providing any kind of direct rent relief um and I haven't heard you know much out of de Blasio on that, but is there anything happening in l a are there any resources
2: um for artists dealing with similar situations, well, the LA Tenants Union, which I am uh, a part of, on um, on a, on a s- smaller scale, you know, that's become a very it's become a bit of a hub for you know people uh, without means, you know, because they are facing the situations that you have alluded to, you know, um, we, people stop rent, paying rent, and it, you know, you know, thirty plus percent of people stop didn't pay rent in April, as as well reported. Um, And the numbers of people who have come on, at least to the meetings, if not joined the union, have doubled since this thing kicked in. Um, But just, you know, to just cut to the chase as far as your reference to, you know, the government, um, Newsom, neither Newsom nor Eric Garcetti, the mayor, uh, are providing the kind of, you know, or or getting in the realm of providing that kind of relief. And in fact, coming up this uh, Sunday is a thing called No Rent. It's it's called the People's City Council No Rent, No Vacancy People's City Council Meeting at Garcetti's, which this Sunday, which is going to be basically a a drive-through protest in his neighborhood with people, uh, bearing signs in their car windows. Um, yeah, you
1: know. yeah, I saw something on Twitter. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and I thought that was a very L.A. thing. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah. But it's COVID safe, so, you know.
1: Yeah, I think in New York, we'd have to do like a six to eight foot, you know, staggered uh, right. protest still. But I don't know how everyone would get anywhere because nobody wants to take the trains right now unless it, you absolutely have to.
0: Right,
3: You know, there there is an eviction moratorium in Los Angeles, but I think it applies to residential tenancies only. Um, And there had been some rent relief measures before the city council, but they were voted down because, surprise, surprise, a majority of the L.A. city council are landlords.
1: Yes. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Our city council Um, is uh, so in the pocket of the Real Estate Board of New York that I just can't expect them to do anything that's going to kind of... um, make landlords or mortgage holders, you know, take a haircut on this and lose the income.
2: Yeah, I'm glad, Carolina, you mentioned that because, you know, when you saw on social media that, you know, that graphic of the various council people and the ones that are landlords themselves, I mean, that's just an absolutely, you know, devastating piece of information, you know, and, and, you know, hello, wake up. Maybe some people might be saying, but, you know, each time you step into that kind of awakening, you know, it's, it really is a gut punch.
0: You know, I will say one, uh, it's just an individual case, but it is uh, some something that I guess adds up to a small amount of support, which is uh, the, the, where i have my office is um at 20 j street in dumbo and that building is run by two trees so the Willentuses, which are very sort of well-known um art philanthropists and they have a studio space subsidy program um and today they just uh announced that Anybody who wanted their uh, subsidy extended for another year, their leases would be automatically uh, extended, which was really nice because even like the leases all expire in, um at the end of December, but I, I still couldn't imagine dealing with that. And we will have had like maybe six, three to six months where people couldn't use their studios at all. Um, But they also offered, like, a lot of support, um, helping people, like, all of their tenants, not just the space subsidy um, recipients, um, apply for business loans um, and that sort of thing. And I think they, so they've, you know, I I don't know what they're doing for individuals who can't pay rent, but they have been um, really helpful. And these are people who I think are not without criticism within the, uh, real estate world and the art and philanthropy world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so, but, you know, in this particular instance, I do think that they, they've, they've helped, uh, the tenants in the building that I, that I am a part of, and they've certainly helped me.
1: Well, and I I think it's interesting, you know, Michael, I went back and listened to our podcast from 2014, and we wrapped up that conversation with a rather long sort of section on on what at that point was referred to as the kind of studio crisis in New York City, where, you know, so many artists were being priced out of studios, that this is, you know, a problem, a pre-existing condition for most artists in New York. And it sounds Mm. like, probably the same thing in LA where we just don't have commercial rent protections in the good times, let alone a pandemic. And the problem's really only sort of gotten worse over the last, you know, six years. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I don't want to say it's a silver lining, but if this does make people more aware of how connected their politicians are to the real estate industry, um, how that influences policies that don't protect you know, any sort of commercial tenants, not just artists, Um, you know, I I hope that's something that maybe, you know, can start to come out of this. Um, But, you know, I guess I'm just not terribly optimistic having been engaged in trying to get even a very small public policy like the Small Business Job Survival Act passed at the New York City, um, at our city council. It just, you know, it's been something that people have been trying to get for over 25 years in New York, and we can't get it. And so, been mm. you
0: know, oh, yeah. really frustrating.
1: Yeah, I, I hope at the end of this that there will be a look at, at what is out there for commercial tenants. Um, you know, at least residential tenants—they're—they're they're discussing possibly a rent freeze for rent-stabilized uh, tenants in New York City. And that covers mm-hmm. a lot of people that would be most impacted. But you know, this is this is part of a much sort of longer. Um, Discussion and and a, and a sort of pre-existing problem, I would certainly say, um, that you know hasn't changed a whole lot since the last time we spoke about it six years ago.
2: Yeah, great point. Yeah, I mean that I remember again prior to all of this kicking in, uh, being at a, at the tenants union. Um, I'm so there are various locals. I think there are in the neighborhood of eight or ten locals around the city, and I'm part of the West Side local um so i've been going to that for about 6 months and i brought up at one point um just i actually think i brought it up to, to one guy sort of in private um about my studio situation and uh, maybe i brought it up to the group and somebody said uh yeah there you don't there aren't much in the way of protections for commercial spaces so that seems to be you know uh, a a given when it comes to commercial real estate you know it is heartening that so many people are joining the tenants union, or at least going to the meetings. But meanwhile, what is happening with commercial spaces? Yeah, that's definitely, there's a a long road to to hoe when it comes to awareness and action in that front. I think this is a
1: great opportunity um, to kind of bring it back to you, Carolina, because you were engaged in a very long effort to unionize the newsroom um, at the LA Times, which you were successful at. And what you described, you know, when we first talked to you about um, what's going on in the industry, you know, the union's been able to kind of keep salaries from being cut or employees from being furloughed yet. Um, so I, I don't know if you want to, you know, kind of come back to um, what's sort of happening at the LA Times. And it, like a, the, the second part to this question is in New York, there was a huge wave of unionization effort, um, efforts within the museums. Uh, to to create unions and get better working conditions for um, arts workers. And uh, right now in New York, we're seeing a lot of museums furlough, uh, fire, and end contracts with employees. And yep. we've been seeing some kind of targeted firings uh, at other companies um, to kind of undermine unionization efforts. And, uh, you know, I, I'm i just kind of curious if you want to jump in on, on any of that and how it's... Um,
3: yeah. I mean, we had been seeing that here. The unionization effort in museums was something we had been seeing in Los Angeles. I think the Marciano Art Foundation being a very famous example of a museum staff that tried to unionize and uh, the owner just shut down his museum in a huff uh, in response. Um, what we have seen so far in terms of layoffs, I'd say in terms of Uh, It's really been uh, Hammer and MoCA and uh, there's one other museum whose name is escaping me right now, the Museum of Tolerance, that have laid off or furloughed workers at this time. Uh, The Museum of Tolerance is already unionized um, and these furloughs are presumably furloughs in that they will hire these folks back uh, when they reopen um MOCA was a bit more complicated because they were in the process of negotiating their contract when the layoffs happened it was numerous part-time employees including many of the service and and forward facing um uh staff of the museum but then the museum followed it kind of compli- I I I don't think the case of MOCA is the case of them just targeting uh, unionizing employees because then they went and furloughed a lot. You know the majority of their curatorial and other staff as well. Um, you know it was kind of a a, a big story in the news. A, a little bit about the bloodletting uh, that had gone on there, which I think raises other questions about how well museums are financed and for what. And you know what do philanthropists give their money for? Um, so I think you know in Los Angeles at least. I'm not getting the sense that unionized employees have been specifically targeted as, you know, with the pandemic. But again, you know, we're, we're in week four and we have many weeks ahead. So let's see. I mean, we also have many museums that are not unionized. So like, for mm-hmm. example, there were layoffs at the Hammer, but those were student workers, mm-hmm. um, many of whom likely left campus anyway. Um, so so it's a little complicated to, I think, suss out at this moment.
0: So in New York, um, the art handling company, Wovo, uh, laid off, uh, I think it was like 20% of its employees, um, but it permanently laid off all of those who were involved in organizing a union, um and i think like so that got them some negative press uh understandably um and i think the uh, like their sort of official stance to the press was that they they had not been targeting these people at all you know these were just the people that happened to have been um Selected for the permanent layoff. Yes, um, it's
3: coincidence the way that always happens. I yeah. know
0: it's it's weird, um, but the the one thing that it was really sort of, um, just really upsetting to me was that uh, I I I know somebody who works there, and I was told that one of the people who was permanently laid off was uh, they were not able to get in touch with him, um, and this was somebody who was sick. Um, and single and there was some concern that he was in the hospital uh, but nobody knew you know wow. um, and that there was also some question of like okay well he's lost his job um, how like I think that the company like extends um, benefits for those who want it um, but you have to sign the paperwork which of course he's in no condition to do so um, so those and kinds of extending
3: those benefits too can be very costly.
0: No, if it's um, the cobra, um,
3: cobra so. programs and stuff like that. I mean, sometimes it's cheaper to just get benefits separate from those than it is to extend company benefits. But yeah, it is not the whole situation at museums has been not good.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> Caroline. I think on the last episode we maybe joked a little bit, but we're like, we're all the Marciano foundation right now in terms of museums, you know, um, you know, and, and whether or not, I, I don't think there's any museums in New York that are, say, targeting, uh, union people in the museums, if they were in the process of organizing the unions. Um, but there has just been an enormous amount of, I mean, it undermines the, the efforts, you know, that we're sort of starting at certain museums and ongoing. And, Uh, You know it it points it absolutely points to the precarity of the museums I mean the fact that MoMA which you know, it's part of its its mission statement is to you know focus on education You know canceled all the contracts with their educators and said that it could be Months to years before they're able to kind of rehire uh, You know their education um, staff and people that are working on contract and so it, and
0: then and then they launched a program that was a, like f- a free educational webinars for kids. Uh, mm. You know, so, so who is creating that content?
1: Yeah, yeah. you'd think a, an institution like MoMA, which can spend so much money on physical expansion, could figure out a way to fund their educators to continue to develop or refine content, things that could be provided at a later date. And just to see that go away is is really disheartening. Um and and you know, deeply troubling about the museum situation. Um,
0: Christina, how much do you know about the finances of these individual um museums? Like, does it seem to you that um that in the cases where you're seeing layoffs, they are like the only thing that they that these organizations can do, or is it simply a kind of lack of vision?
3: You know, it's hard to say. I have, this is a story I've been poking around, um, and I need to spend, uh, more time, um, poking, (laughs) or basically what I call is picking through some institutional trash, um, (laughs) is, is, uh, is that, you know, the one way to get a measure of how museums' budgets are working is through the 990s. In most cases, the most recent 990 available is for the 2017 or 2008 tax year. Usually they op- museums operate on a fiscal year, so the last tax documents available would be for 2017-2018. That does not give you a measure of what's happening now. Yeah. Um, from yeah. what From what I do understand, because I think, you know, there has been this big question, and this is something I need to get at, but I'm going to need to get somebody at a museum to talk to me, and maybe a lot of philanthropy experts is to understand, like, okay, these billion dollar endowment places, like, what is going on? Like, I understand that Mass Mocha, which is, you know, a place with a $12 million endowment, and that's quite, and has a small operating budget, would need to lay people off, but like, Moma, you know, like Moma is is like a multinational corporation. It's got like the economy of a small like island nation. So how could this be happening? And I think part of it is um you know the money that donors give to that you know it's targeted giving for building projects uh yeah. to get their names on wings, to get their names in galleries. It's not necessarily giving for administrative Um, my understanding, and this is very rough, it's not, I don't, I don't want anybody to take it as gospel, but my understanding is that usually most nonprofits and, uh, not just museums, like a good nonprofit is thought to have 10% of its budget on reserve. Well, 10% of a budget isn't going to get anybody through a crisis that is months long. Um, and so uh you know because a lot of giving a lot of giving happens in installments you know while a donor might pledge say 100 million dollars that 100 million dollars might be paid out over a certain period so it's not like the museum gets the money all at once there's a lot of income that museums make off of their restaurants their bookstores and rentals i mean like event rentals cannot be underestimated as, as a source of income for some museums you know hosting events concerts um, all those kinds of things are really important sources of income and that has just been completely cut off so i've been trying to understand what you know is this a lack of vision is this really shitty philanthropy in that people want to give money to put the name on their building but they don't really care about the people in the building is this The nature of how nonprofits are structured like that's a question. I'm currently trying to wrap my brain around and it's just a little hard Working with documentation that is in many
0: cases two to three years old Yes. Oh, sorry, William. Do you want to go ahead?
1: I just wanted to say that, you know, this idea that um, you know, it's it's This has been coming down the pike for a long time in the sense that there's been this idea that nonprofits need to be more quote unquote sustainable and diversify or find revenues to become self-sufficient to kind of get off the philanthropic funding um, line. And that depends on audiences and the public, you know, and-
3: It also uh, depends on the government, you know, like LACMA is the one institution that hasn't laid anybody off in Los Angeles yet. And, you know, a third to a quarter, a quarter to a third of their funding comes from the county.
1: Absolutely. So if you if you have an institution that is, you know, more independent from ticket sales and revenue there can keep people on to some degree. But I think a lot of that that push to become sustainable and self-sufficient has been coming from the kind of patronage side. You know, uh, you could look at the Met and why they needed to suddenly, you know, after many years starting to charge um, admission to people from out, out of you know, New York and New Jersey, really. And the, this this seems to be kind of you know basically just like a neoliberal concept that you know the arts need to support itself and the wisdom of that you know in the long term may not be so great and right now it's very clear you know uh, when those audiences are gone for smaller institutions they're in a lot of trouble you know and and if there isn't that kind of public or government money uh, for arts and culture um, you know the situation gets a lot more dire. You know mm-hmm. uh, in in three months, six months, to a year, um, one of the uh, documents that I was looking at, and I think it might have been from the center of urban planning or something, they said they found, quote, "Our research found that nearly all small and mid-sized arts organizations are facing slash slash budgets and reduced staffing, and many are teetering on the brink of insolvency with their doors shuttered and all in-person events either cancelled or postponed organizations and venues are losing months of revenue needed to just stay afloat you know and many have been forced to lay off staff uh, and consider indefinite closure you know and um, that that situation you know that precarity existed before the pandemic and now we're really you know seeing it you know how it plays yeah.
3: out
0: not on, on fire you know <laughs> That, uh, so that was, I think you're quoting from the Center of uh, Urban Futures.
3: Futures.
0: And um, so that report came out and it was focused on um, New York City um, nonprofits. And one of the things that I guess I'd sort of been wondering about relative to uh, the, the museum conversation and the arts organizations is to what degree, you know, an arts organization Um, might be a little bit more nimble than, um, you know, a giant museum that has like so, so much overhead. Uh, So one of the people that I talked to for a piece that I wrote for Hyperallergic earlier this week um, on small to mid-sized arts organizations across the country, um, this woman, Louise Mortiano um, at Redline Studios, um or redline contemporary art in Denver had said that she was able to do a couple of things and it was like she knew exactly how much um money that artists had lost in the area and it was around thirty five hundred dollars um like at that specific time and she was like okay now I gotta go and try and figure out how to um you know fill that gap so she made um like a I think a lot of people are doing this like she she worked with the city and the state and um the Warhol regranting fund and put all the money together for an artist relief fund so she did that but then the interesting thing that I thought she did was that she um she worked with the homeless shelters and employed artists and so she, um to make Masks for the homeless shelters. So she was able to get a grant, a sort of joint grant um, to do that. And she has like hired 10 artists to make 2,000 masks. And I, you know, to me, that was sort of once somebody says something like that, it's like a very obvious solution. Um, but at, nobody else had talked to me about doing anything like that. Um, and she hadn't laid off anybody. Um, and she had said to me, you know, if I even had a penny in my wallet, that would be going to somebody on my staff, or like some way to support the people that we're supposed to be supporting. Right. And I thought that was the message I wanted to be hearing. <laughs> yes.
1: Absolutely, Patty. I mean, she's running like a full employment program, you know, and you would think larger institutions, if they valued labor and their employees, they would find something for them to do, even if it was sort of off mission or not part of the usual um, work that they have to do, you know? Well, and- maybe
3: even, you know, one of the things that has struck me is that a number of like these laid off museum groups, like the MOCA union set up a relief fund And they're trying to raise, you know, $50,000 in relief funds for uh, the laid off union staffers, of which there are a lot. And it's like, I don't know, doesn't some philanthropist on MoCA's board, like have a few grand laying around, they can donate to that? I mean, these are not (laughs) vast sums, you know? Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) But instead, it's like people on the ground donating $25, $100, $200. Yeah,
1: right now, we might need to kind of come up with some proposals for patrons to fund individual employees. Uh, Maybe the employees have to wear the patron's name, you know. (laughs) know? Yeah,
3: they have like NASCAR-style jackets.
1: Yeah, this mask brought to you by, you know, David (laughs) Gessen. I mean, mean, that's That's cool.
0: I'm just imagining all the different like name fonts and they're like all caps sans serif.
3: <laughs> yeah, Linda Resnick would definitely be like an italic done in pomegranate red.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, it definitely
1: points to our, our reliance on that, that private money. And, you know, we see the kind of strings that are attached to that and what they want the money to go towards. And whether it's been sort of long in the planning and what happens in an emergency situation like this, it doesn't seem to be quite as nimble. I, I saw one thing in your piece, Patty, that I, I'm not sure exactly which institution this came from, but she was talking about a city received 20,000 applications and only had a million dollars to distribute. And that's like $50 per application if they distributed it eve- evenly. And so, you know, the kind of need is not, not being met you know, in most cases when it comes to grant money or just, you know, funds that have been made available. That seemed to be a a kind of perfect example for me for the level of funding that's sort of out there, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, Liv Mo at uh, Verge Contemporary Center for the Arts in Sacramento. And um, I mean, I thought one of the more salient things she said uh, uh, while kind of communicating about her the the organization's particular situation was that she felt like funders were always telling her to to, to try and find partners and she was just like I'm not going to partner my way out of this like what we need is funding and I felt like that was a very clear statement because when you're the other thing that she had talked about was that when you are a, a non-profit you are kind of and you're trying to fundraise. You're you need to have some sort of a happy story or some sort of something that makes somebody feel good for giving you money. Like they're they that empowers them in some way. You know, you never want to. Like a donor doesn't like to feel like they're just rescuing someone. Um, right. Right. But that's what's ha- that's what's needed. You know. So fundraising is really challenging in this environment because what's needed and what works are two separate things. So the way that you communicate about things, that the money you need is maybe not entirely, um, it's painting a a very particular kind of picture that's tinted, Um, you know, it's not the clearest uh, financial picture that, that should be given, I think.
1: How do you make a compelling argument against you know patronage and private funding because if it has to come with feel-good narratives and stories that make the funders feel good and that their values are sort of being um represented you know it it makes a case for more public funding where maybe it's you know less tied to uh, a rich person's feelings
2: yeah i this the philanthropic Thread of this conversation continues to remind me of the book that I've been reading over the past six weeks, maybe um, on Anjira um "Winners Take All," which is about the lie that is philanthropy. Essentially, the the, the basic overall premise is that um, the the there's so much corruption, uh, or you know, the, the scales are weighted so poorly overall in the way that. Um, money is made on the front end, then philanthropists come in on the back end to try to make things better, right yeah. and so and that and that speaks all the way through the you know um, the the pretty message you know or the or the the heartwarming message and whatnot. And it's very easy to imagine that philanthropists, in a time like this, um, will be taking care of themselves more than you know jumping in and taking care of. People, I mean, that oh, seems to be proven out so far, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, David Geffen was Instagramming from his boat and was like, internet wow. from it.
1: Right. Well, David Geffen is still alive. I, 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 I <laughs> use him all the time with Paul Allen. Don't ask me why. But, you know, um, big sort of art philanthropists. Um, You know, I think we could talk about museums for a lot longer, but Carolina, I don't know if there was anything specific about what's happening at uh, LACMA in terms of the demolition of the old campus and the expansion happening sort of right now.
3: Yes. Uh, Yes. LACMA, never, pandemic or no pandemic, always gives us something to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) They are, thank God for consistency. (laughs) LA museums, always delivering. Um, They began demolition on a portion of the East Campus that is going to be replaced by the Peter Zumthor building uh, on Monday, April 6th. And You know, while the museum had announced that it had scheduled demolition, um, you know, the fact that it began while L.A. was in a lockdown order and the fact that the museum didn't really announce it, but instead it was like people happened to drive by or walk by and see that there was like a glaring pit where the Bing Theater once stood, you know, just like upset a lot of folks because A, it doesn't feel very transparent and B, whatever you think of those uh, buildings by William Pereira. And I was, I'm not a fan, but um, you know, they've been around for 55 years. They've been part of the LA landscape. They're part of our history. Uh, The Bing Theater opened with a a new composition uh, uh, by the French composer Pierre Boulet. It's been an important site of classical music, of film screenings, of artist talks. And so to just kind of drive by and find out that it's gone, I think just pissed a lot of people off and raised a lot of questions about how transparent the museum is being about this building project, and in fact, I just had a story uh, go live about um, you know the fact that LACMA is now demolishing buildings, and um, you know we still have not seen an internal gallery plan for this Peter Zumthor building. Like, what the inside, how this is going to be laid out, and how it's all going to fit together is still a complete mystery and and that's unusual you know I I went back and looked at the MoMA plans you know when MoMA announced uh that it was going to tear down the Folk Art Museum and that it was going to undertake these new renovations they issued schematics in 2014 like they were rough schematics and yes they were schematics that evolved and changed over time um, but they nonetheless issued schematics that showed how the new expansion would fit in with the existing museum and what would be gallery space and so on and so forth. Um, you know that was years before they began construction. Um, and then in 2017, when they began the construction on the new wing, they issued another set of schematics that were far more detailed and showed like circulation and showed galleries and showed everything, all the amenities. You know, down to the staircases. They produced a cool video and. You know, this is a building that it's like, it's, first of all, it's $750 million, a good chunk of it of which is being borne by the taxpayers. It's a highly unusual shape. It will perpetually have a highly unusual program, and we still don't know what its insides look like.
1: Doesn't it sort of expand the footprint of the museum, like it crosses one of the major boulevards?
3: It goes, it's actually smaller than the gallery space it is replacing.
1: Yeah, that's what I understood. Uh, it's going to
3: have, but it straddles Wilshire Boulevard because <laughs> Michael Govan wanted a museum that was one story only because his theory is that people don't go uh, to the second stories of museums.
1: So he's never been to MoMA.
3: Or the Met. I don't you know, it's like what do people do at the Met other than climb that grand staircase to European paintings? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. No, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> it's also like, I mean, that whole idea, the urbanism of it is just bonkers to me at a time when LA is growing increasingly dense that it's like, no, we must have a horizontal. Yeah,
1: we space. want to sprawl out, increase the like physical footprint of the building while shrinking the amount of gallery space inside of that, which is counterintuitive at best, and probably just terrible design. Um,
3: yeah, and also like I think, you know, bad financially for the museum because by expanding over Wilshire, they're taking over a parking lot that the that LACMA currently owns uh, on the south side of Wilshire where the building is going to land. Um, now that land, which maybe could have been sold off or developed as a real estate project to give the museum money for a rainy day or say a pandemic <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: is now uh, going to be part of this immovable object, you know?
0: Is there any upside to this uh, th- this project? You know, I I have not... I was,
3: I want to give a nuanced answer to that because I don't want to say yes or no, because what has happened in Los Angeles is that there are these varying camps and and one of the camps is we must save the old buildings and another one of the camps is we must build the Zumthor and I'm of the camp of, I don't think the old buildings work, but I don't think Zumthor is the answer. I guess let me put it that way. And and I I have deep concerns about the project, not just aesthetically and architecturally, but also the amount of debt it's going to put the museum into. You know, the museum already had somewhere around $300 million worth of bond debt from earlier expansions. Now it presumably will be adding some more. Uh, Presumably those funds have been raised and it will be paid off. But, you know, now we are entering a pandemic. The museum is shut down. They're not getting events money. They're not getting bookstore money. They're not getting admissions. LACMA still charges admissions. Yeah, it's expensive. Um, yeah. That's so right. How this museum, and they haven't laid off any staff and, or furloughed any staff, which is admirable, but I also don't know how long they can keep that up, like, without any revenue that- coming in.
1: Is that $300 in bond debt, is that public debt?
3: Yeah, that's like a mortgage. You know, you pay it out over 30 years and it's low interest and and so on and so forth. But still, it's like you're taking, I did a story about it um, in February where I analyzed the museum's debt and I showed that, you know, as it is, without the bond debt from the new museum, um, LACMA already has one of the highest debt-to-budget ratios to assets ratios of any museum around. And so, um, you know, and I looked at museums that had recent building projects. um, The Whitney, you know, the Whitney, for example, very, like, their debt has been very well managed. Uh, Other institutions um, have far lower uh, debt ratios than LACMA has, and some of them have far bigger endowments and, and many more assets.
1: Right. Well, um, I'm sure LACMA that, you know, I'm glad the story's out. I look forward to reading that. And you also have another story on the LA gallery scene that's going to be published soon. Yes. Um, and by the time our podcast airs, uh, the story will likely be public, but do you want to give us a little bit of, um, an overview of of what you found out about how the pandemic is impacting the the flip side of museums and the kind of commercial gallery scene in LA, which, you know, has been going through a period of kind of expansion and a lot of attention and focus from the art world.
3: Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, I, I don't know anybody that, I don't think uh, it, there's like uh, this tradition of the New York Times style section writing about our blazing international art scene like <laughs> every two seconds. Um, I, you know, I did. I, I had wanted to do a thorough look. Uh, I, I've been wanting to do thorough looks at how this is affecting different aspects of the art world, and um, with galleries, it's always difficult because they're privately run businesses. Uh, Galleries aren't always inclined to tell you honestly the challenges they are facing, you know, uh, art is sold uh, on buzz, uh, on a combination of like buzz and hype and art speak and it doesn't necessarily do a gallerist good to tell you that they might be hurting you know, if you go to an art fair, every gallerist is always selling out.
2: <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> or they're nice. doing amazing and yep. gangbusters and whatever. And so what I ended up doing is I did, I spoke to gallerists around the city of all different sizes, from like one-man band shops to, to folks at some of the international uh, spaces. And I did an anonymous survey so that I could see where things stood um, and I had 35 galleries responded to the survey, which was great um, and galleries of all sizes from different parts of town. And, you know, we're looking at a situation in which a, a quarter of those galleries may not make it to the end of the year. They think they may not make it to the end of the year. Um, and we're also looking at an art world, you know, cause the ones that are liable to make it are think are now thinking, What is this going to look like when we reopen? Um, You know, what will the world be like? What will I be reopening to? Uh, You know, we're probably, it's not like things are going to open and it's back to normal and you're throwing openings and jetting off to art fairs. You know, air travel is probably going to be affected for the conceivable future, as will likely participation in art fairs I mean across the board the gallerists I spoke to were very skeptical of art fairs and and some were still applying for Art Basel Miami Beach with this sort of wait and see let's wait and see if this even happens kind of attitude but like many others were just like you know that's crazy I'm not even thinking about it I'm going to be more locally focused and so what we're potentially looking at is a far smaller, far slimmer art scene and one that is more like L.A. focused.
1: Well, in a kind of Darwinian logic, you know, I'm sure some people would be happy with that to kind of trim the, the fat as it were, the excess. But, you know, I I, I still show a Charlie James uh, gallery out in LA. And he he was talking about finding a new space and expanding and sort of growing. And I don't know if you talked to him at all. Um, I, I
3: did. I, I actually did. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't end up quoting him in the story just because I had talked to so many people and I couldn't use anything. But I mean, I think Charlie is feeling like he dodged a bullet uh, because he had been thinking about getting a larger space and had sort of started looking into it and, um, but he hadn't really made any real moves on it. And he was grateful because he felt like the size of the gallery he has is sustainable through the pandemic, that he's not carrying any debt. He's continued to make some small sales even after the pandemic hit. Um, he feels like he runs a lean operation. And so he felt positive that he would emerge on the other side of the pandemic, but that that would be far more nerve wracking if he had just uh, gone from his small Chinatown space to some 5,000 or 7,000 square foot, you know, warehouse in Hollywood or whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, (laughs) it's good to hear that news about Charlie. I haven't talked to him yet. Uh, about what 's going on, you know and, and i mean the the precarity of galleries we 've been sort of long aware of that situation, and we know that art fairs have had a big impact, like you know on the last podcast we did, Magda Sowin talked about the fact that you know postmasters basically has two months of of reserve you know to kind mm-hmm. of keep everything going, and that you know she 's stopped doing so many of the art fairs. Um, because it's such a you know kind of big capital investment, and there's no guarantee that there's going to be a return. Um, one thing that uh, we can do on the podcast today, and maybe it's a good time to bring it up, is that we do know that you know it's hard to get information out of uh, dealers about what they're selling and not selling. But the Dallas Art Fair opened yesterday, and yes. all of the galleries have listed whether. Well, one thing that's nice is the prices are all available and you can make a sales inquiry uh, if the work is not currently on reserve or already sold. So we do have an opportunity uh, to all go to an art fair and uh, maybe take a look at some of the the booths on display and see what's sold, uh, what's not sold um and it i guess it's just sort of offering an unusual level of transparency i would say and also potentially a model for art fairs that we might be seeing uh in the future you know um and
0: also just to say uh, a new model for podcasts um we can now go to an art fair <laughs> live broadcast what we see on the website as we as we see it um and uh tell our readers, our <laughs> listeners about um about what we're seeing.
2: Uh, I actually have if if you will, a little um interesting uh s- Dallas Art Fair related anecdote, which is well, anecdote's too strong a word, but I long story got short, got in um on the mailing list of one of the James Cohan gallery um salespeople or directors and um, I was looking on behalf of somebody else. And um, so I've been getting emails with, you know, here are pieces that we're going to be showing at the upcoming thing or at the upcoming show. And one of them <clears throat> in the most recent email uh, had about five pieces, including if you go to the Cohan page, s- top right, March 16th, 2020, Fred Tomaselli's piece, that was listed for 25K in the email and that was <clears throat> that was just about a week ago so uh mazel to them for that yeah. sale
0: yep yeah. um and just so that our listeners know what was sold uh fred thomas selling uh creates uh one of his series is he'll take uh newspaper clippings and alter them in, in some way so in this particular one he takes uh a clipping from the New York Times, uh, March 16th, 2020, that reads "Fed cuts rates to near zero, virus tolls soars," and there's a picture of, I guess, what looks like um, Grand Central Station and a rainbow around one of the kind of tunnels that you could take to go through uh, the terminal.
2: It's kind of a rain, <clears throat> a rainbow tunnel. Um, yeah. It's, But it's not a, necessarily a cheery rainbow, just for people who haven't seen it yet.
1: Well, yeah, and uh, I know, uh, Carolina, that you spoke with Night Gallery in L.A., and <clears throat> they're also at the Dallas Art Fair. Um, they
3: are. They are. I was, I was briefly sucked in by another gallery, but I'm going what, to their right looking, now.
1: What were you <laughs> sucking <at>? uh,
3: <laughs> Well, I had gone to James Cohen, and then I was checking out Marlboro. Um, But yeah, it looks like Night Gallery has sold several, they've sold three pieces,
1: um, four pieces,
3: five pieces, wow. Um, But again, you know, this also, this still has the transparency of Squid Ink because I'm like, did these sell before the fair even started? Because that's the whole racket with art fairs is you know, they send the email to the collectors before the fair has even gone up and then half the work is sold before. I mean, it's like, why do we even need art fairs if they're just going to email a collector and the collector's going to buy it through an email?
1: Well, this right. is what we talked about <clears throat> the last podcast is that, you know, you have galleries. And I think Deitch, in your article, you talked about the fact that Deitch is trying to create a new <laughs> kind of communal platform for a bunch of the LA galleries. Um, yes. That, you know, they're rebranding websites as you know, online viewing rooms to kind of create that sense of exclusivity, uh, you know, something sort of special for the collector class. Like, you know, the art fairs have clearly been oriented and built for that particular audience. You know, most of us go and with some level of trepidation and are not terribly thrilled to see art, you know, in a kind of traveling trade show all the time.
3: You know, Uh, I mean, I'm trying to, I personally try to visualize, like all of these like wealthy collectors on their couches and their choners buying $14,000 paintings.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and clearly, Patty, you'd you'd brought up a point that, you know, these sales may be happening online, but, you know, what's going to be the delay in getting work? You know, there's not a lot of art shipping companies that are able to operate right now as essential businesses, you know, is this stuff all just going to get FedExed, you know? Twenty thousand dollar paintings
0: uh well yeah and what does that do to the the um the art shipping business i mean one thing i think is kind of funny about the way some of these online viewing rooms get branded is that they're described as like private viewing rooms and like in the middle of a quarantine like i the last thing i want to hear about is like you know some private experience i want to see people vip
3: some vip i got an email about some vip something or other and i'm just like oh fuck that
1: yeah (laughs) right you know they'd have to add to this as a kind of zoom feature or something so if you're scrolling the page you know your video pops up and you could see other people you know looking at uh grant levy lucero's american coco abuelita you know
3: or yeah, or it could be like hotels.com where it tells you like eight other people have booked this yeah. hotel this evening. All right.
2: <laughs> 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 oh, I love it. I want to, can I take this opportunity? Cause I don't know if I'm going to have it again. I want to ask Carolina and then I want to ask you guys. Um, so Night Gallery is, I had Mika and, and Davida on the show several years ago, um, just as they had moved into that downtown space. But um is Is that like just the the epitome of um the culture cult of personality? you know what is it about that scene? what is it about the sales um you know how is it able to regenerate um itself with you know this hotness?
3: I don't know, but then I always you know I'm so cynical, like I always wonder about any hotness because. You know, with museums, I can, a museum might be lying to me right now, but 18 months from now, I can go look at their 990 and at least get some idea of, you know, where the skeletons are hiding. Mm-hmm. with galleries, you know, they're always private, they're private businesses and, you know, all this stuff that has sold, like, did it really sell? Did it sell in advance? Did it sell at another event? But now it's being marked, like, we don't know, like, there's no... There's no way to verify any of I, this. Like
0: I will say that I remember in the last uh like um recession, um I went to Art Basel and I was like talking to different galleries and how they were doing. And I think it was at the Pulse Art Fair. I talked to a dealer, I was like, How are you doing? He was like, Wow, you know, everybody else is losing their shirt, but we sold out, you know? <laughs> and they were like, he looked super excited and I was like oh okay you know and I just kind of thought well if they think that like why would they tell me they sold out if they didn't um because I'm going to publish this uh which may be why they told me that um but anyway the next year I talked to the same person and I was like so how's the fair for you and he was like Wow, you know, last year we nearly lost our shirts, but this year we're doing great. (laughs) They They can't keep the lies consistent. Yeah, they can't keep the lies consistent. But I remember, like, (laughs) yeah, I remember somebody lies to me.
2: Right, right.
0: I mean, I think the case of Night Gallery. It's like
3: you know, they they have they started off as this small space in a strip mall in lincoln heights and it was open at night and it was a little storefront and they would do weird funny things and um you know they've had like some key uh artists you know like it's interesting to see spaces like this grow um you know kind of grow and have some of their original artists grow with them i think it's uh I'm spacing on the artist's name. I think it's Samara Golden who's been with them from the Mm -hmm. get-go. And so you have these artists that since that gallery came, you know, into, became part of the LA scene, many of its artists have gone on to do biennials and installations and been in museum shows and had projects. and, And so it's kind of like this whole, um, uh... It kind of raises, you know, rising tide lifts everyone's uh, Which is boat. Great. But, you know, they're celebrating. This is their tenth anniversary this year. Well,
1: it's certainly great if the artists don't immediately sort of jump ship and go on to, you know, Hauser work, and Worth, like, Hauser <laughs> Worth, or <laughs> or something. My um,
3: favorite thing is to watch Roberta Smith rail against Hauser and Worth on Twitter. Um, <laughs>
1: They had such a kind of epic run of announcing artists that they were representing, you know, from David Hammonds to, you know, just with this kind of incredible list. Um, They are, they are kind of like the death star. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm also curious, Michael or Carolina, do you know, uh, you know, this could just be gossip, but you know, was Stefan Simkowicz involved with night gallery at any point, you know, because I feel like if you talk about that idea of like what makes a gallery hot or, you
3: know, I don't. I don't think so.
2: Yeah, I. I, I don't think so either. Um, but I. I do Just to, since we're still on Night Gallery, I do want to add that you know the openings there are just the most. Other than like a Gagosian type situation, they're the most crowded openings. You know, so it's like it's not just the you know art certain artists that have stayed with them. You know, and have riff, lifted the tides. It's also the scene. You know, and I'm just. It, it, it's like, and that's why I use that term, cult of personality, because it's this kind of thing that you don't really control. It just kind of happens.
3: Yeah, yeah. I guess they know how to make scene. I mean, I think about it in terms of Deitch. Like, Deitch is really good. At right, that. His, his right. openings are fantastic, you know. <laughs> like
2: Fantastically crowded.
3: Yeah, fantastically yeah. crowded, but you right. also see like all different kinds of people in crazy outfits and right, the right, show that he has on. He was gonna host some like vernal equinox witch gathering. And like he he knows how to make not necessarily make, but also just tap into scene, you know, tap into pre-existing scene. So yeah, some galleries I think are are blessed um yeah with that and i don't know i don't know what sort of chimeric combination of ingredients begets that Um, the
1: the new factor there's you know a kind of youth factor i mean like we we started off talking about james cohan and like james cohan gallery is well respected but nobody's going to accuse it of being cool you know not like JPT gallery in uh you know new york city or the kind of offbeat, weird coolness of Canada Gallery, which, you know, I think Patty, you're a, a big fan of Canada.
0: Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say that I think there's a distinction between um, galleries that are able to uh, cultivate a scene or maybe a nicer word for it would be a community and galleries that do extremely well um, financially, you know? sure. They don't always go hand in hand, although sometimes they do. Like you can, a, a gallery that has really um, sort of well attended openings that seem to be really hip, um, may often may often not really attract the people who are going to buy anything at those particular openings. So right, right, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm just scrolling through the whole. <laughs> galleries offerings right now.
2: What are the what are the analogues of a night gallery in New York or, or or even Deitch, which obviously used to be in New York?
0: Well Deitch has a New York space now again.
2: Oh okay, right.
0: hmm Yeah. So I guess the analogue to Deitch is Deitch. Deitch, yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. Although I mean I think maybe uh, the the closest analog to him would be the whole um because Kathy Grayson runs that uh, gallery and she worked for Deitch as a director for many years um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: there's
0: there is a kind of lineage there yeah well, you know I mean karma
1: gallery is uh, not a terrible analog um JTT is probably a little bit smarter than night gallery but uh, mm-hmm. another analog hmm
3: Well, I, uh, Thornton, uh, there's some Thornton dial pieces on at the Marlborough space of the Dallas Art Fair for $120,000.
1: Oh, Marlboro. <laughs> 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 on <that right> <laughs> yeah. um, one, Patty, I think we, we both, uh, when we jumped on the Dallas Art Fair website, one show that kind of struck us as maybe being a little bit um, unusual and really interesting is Bill Arning's project. An appropriate response that was a collaborative exhibition uh curated co curated with uh Ben Tischer formerly of um, now I'm going to space on his gallery's name uh, invisible exports
0: but now goes under the name new discretions new Discretions. yeah, yeah this show is really great like lots of um, I mean lots of figuration uh like we we saw at Canada but I mean I think. There's really, like, some trademark Ben Tischer work in here. Just, like, sort of very strange, like, sexually charged work. Um It's semi-creepy things. Like, there's a Susan Anderson um, pigment print of a, just a Kelly, Kellyanne Conway bust with her mouth sort of open, and she's this ghostly... Very ghastly figure. It's pretty creepy. Yeah.
1: I mean, knowing Bill Arning, you know, there's certainly a queer aesthetic to it. There's a transgressive aesthetic. And there, you know I, know, I love Ben because, you know, he's political, but he's not sort of politically correct. He'd rather be politically incorrect and push any kind of boundary. If I had $8,000, which I don't, I would definitely buy one of these Genesis Peorage uh, collages. So, oh, yeah. I was thinking, I was
3: thinking a, the exact same thing. <laughs> my
1: recommendation. And, you know, I, I'd give a shout out to Steve Locke's um, sculptures that he has uh, in the show. And I guess Steve just won a Guggenheim Fellowship. So, congratulations to Steve.
0: I'm just looking for the Steve Locke. Oh, these. So, uh, for our listeners, the Steve Locke. Uh, sculptures are sort of upside down um heads they're made of hydrocal and have um nails in the hair that kind of uh look like its own they look like you know coronaviruses but with faces on them
1: Mm. (laughs) right three three zero yes more corona than uh Student 338, which is the title of the, the work. Oh,
0: this was the one that you were looking at, Student 338?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, both of them. Uh, right. There to discuss. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, sort of one of the more interesting finds. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't been through all of the booths yet, and I might not click through all of them the way that I would, you know, at least walk through a, a booth at the Dallas Art Fair. <laughs> Um, but this is a great find, you know, I think this is one of the stronger um, exibi- online exhibitions I've seen in the last month, actually. So I'm glad we sort of took the time to poke around on the, or at least visit the Dallas Art
2: Fair.
3: Are you guys looking at a lot of online exhibitions? Because I find it honestly a little intolerable.
2: No. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Caroline. I was, in fact, I was just going to ask William, you know, because I imagine that you and, uh, Patty, you know, for your work are doing it to a certain extent, but as artists, you know, you have a little bit more leeway. Um, I have not been doing it. I'm only on probably 10 email lists and I've got, you know, I've clicked a couple of times, but it it just, it feels, it doesn't feel right to be going into an online exhibition. You know, you want to be proactive and, you know, seeking stuff out, not reactive, I think, for for me anyway. Yeah. Go ahead, Patty.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely am seeing, I guess, more online exhibitions than I would if I weren't, which is a good replacement for all the art I'm not seeing in person. Um, And when I say a good replacement, I say it's the only replacement, therefore, (laughs) a good replacement. Um, But I like, uh, you know, I don't necessarily find the. uh, The experience all that interesting and part of that is that I like to go see art with other people and talk about it and that's really difficult to do when you're just clicking through images. Um, One of the things that I tend to become a little bit more aware of you know is the kind of the layout design of uh, you know of an online exhibition. So for this one i you know, I don't really like that it's uh, designed in the same way that, like, you might go through a booth. There's no easy way to, uh, like, once you're in the, the gallery's uh, page, you can't just skip to another gallery's page. You've got to go back to all the rooms and navigate that way. It's a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, So like, you know, you end up thinking about UX design and I don't know, I find that stuff sort of interesting, but, um, when it's bad, you end up thinking about UX design rather than what you're looking at.
1: Well, and I I think that brings up an interesting point too, is that like my, my inner modernist, you know, or sort of purist is like, I don't really want to, I want to see some of the art in person if I really think it needs to be experienced in person. Um, the other side of it, you know, I do want to see interesting projects that make use of of being on the Internet, you know, not just a platform to show me an image of something that I really need to see in person. Um, you know, and so I, you know, I I think I tweeted out that if people wanted to see an interesting project, uh, they could go back and look at Mark America's Grammatron, which is an early hypertext from 1997 that was sort of built for looking at and experiencing on a browser, and you can't go see it anywhere else, you know? Mm-hmm. No way to do it. I mean,
3: I've been intrigued by that, that more institutions haven't, I mean, internet art, especially places like the Whitney that have had internet art projects on their website, that museums have not taken advantage of that and instead are trying to show us paintings online. Do you know yeah. what I mean?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a little weird. I mean, there uh there's that show well now what the um well now dot what the fuck um that was organized by faith holland uh wade wallerstein and lorna mills which is just an animated gift show i thought that was a really good um show one because it was sort of designed like chat rooms from the early 90s so you could go all of every artist there were like god 80 80 some odd artists each artist got one GIF and you go into a room and there'd be like seven or eight GIFs in that room. And they were all under a particular theme and you had to go kind of back and forth. Um, actually, no, you didn't, you could just click to the next room and it would load. So it was, I thought that was a really fun exhibition, particularly because like now when you look at animated GIFs, if you find like, typically you're finding them through Giphy or on your phone or something like that. And they're all like, they all have to have certain meet certain community standards. And there's some invisible algorithm that pulls up like what you're seeing. So you don't know necessarily like why you're not getting a particular gift that you, that you would see in this show. So it's just filled with things that like break the community standards. Like, would never be popular enough to come up in a search algorithm anyway but are really kind of extraordinary works of art so a really complex and like uh 3d rendering in some cases like lots of porn like a real kind of anything goes uh aesthetic and i i love that
3: oh yeah this is i'm i'm enjoying this this is the kind of thing I feel like we are at this moment that is about the internet. Like, let's call on people who make internet to make internet rather than trying to just make paintings in a quote-unquote viewing room, which is really a nice word for website.
1: Yep, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you went to the Dallas Art Fair website, people. <laughs>
3: I, just, I, I love that the art world has made that a thing, because it's like it, I see it quoted in the art media, like so-and-so launched their
0: viewing room. I was like, motherfuckers, it's a website. Like,
3: <laughs> so
0: you know? <laughs> Not even that. Sometimes it's just a link to somebody's database. You know. Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm what just about?
0: Like, wait, wait
3: till I debut my view, my writer viewing room. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what about um uh virtual reality uh, art? Um, you know, I think there's that's been a little bit more common in galleries. But of course, there's the monetization and privatization factor, right? So that, so if it's a an artist of some market value, they're not going to make that available publicly because it's it's well, a, the same as owning it, right?
1: I, I, saw, I don't know. I don't know the website URL for this, but I think I saw Jacoby Satterwhite, whose work is a kind of VR experience, sometimes with headsets, other times just you know projected on a screen. But I think I saw like a, a kind of three-dimensional world gallery space where you could go in and kind of navigate and look around and see the work um, that maybe included his work. But, I, you know, I, I, I certainly think there are some things that are getting pushed out into the world that might not just be about, you know, being restricted because of their commercial uh, value. You know, one of the things that we were going to try to do if we didn't visit the Dallas Art Fair Um, I had emailed uh, Darren Bader's website to see if we could all get an early version of this beta app that's like an augmented reality app where we could have all opened up our phones and pointed it at our various spaces. And apparently like a giant, you know, gorilla comes flying into the space on a magic carpet. And so I I was trying to find something that we could all do that would, um, we could experience kind of. Uh, separately, uh, but together, and uh, unfortunately, I you know I emailed them too late and I haven't gotten a response yet. So uh, mm. our, our communal experience was was heading to the Dallas uh, Art Fair website. <laughs> I, I am I am you know like the Darren Vader piece was supposed to be ready for like the Venice Biennale or something and it got delayed and it didn't make it and now they've made it you know accessible if you send them an email. You know, so I expect I'll probably get a response in a couple of days. Um but that that's like an interesting thing I would love to try. You know, that's something mm-hmm. unusual and involves technology and um the internet and and isn't something that I'm just getting a kind of simulacra version of, you know, the real. Um, and and I think that's that's something that, you know, I would like to see more of right now, rather than VR tours of the Met, you know. Um <laughs>
3: I mean, I think part part of what's been interesting is the stuff that I have found, I mean, when I think about my art viewing experiences, which aren't just for work, because I do this all day, so when I think about the art that I, as a person, want to consume, it, first of all, a lot of it is not contemporary. Like, I almost feel I need to get out of the moment. Like, the other day, I was doing the audio tour of the El Greco exhibition at the Audi- at the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, the Met actually has really good audio programming for its Dutch paintings show, uh, in which they got non-art people to talk about some of the paintings. So for example, they had a food stylist talking about um, the still lifes. They had a cinematographer <laughs> talking about the use of light. Uh, they had all of these like interesting things that to some degree have nothing to do with our moment and that our experiences that are just more than looking at something on a screen and i have found those more interesting than you know some of the the gallery stuff oh. i've seen which i know is like put together kind of last minute you know that met thing is highly produced and was probably months in the making
1: well actually carolina that's a perfect maybe segue to uh start to wind down the podcast is we did want to ask you both Michael and Carolina, what, what has sort of brought you some joy, um, during this time of, you know, self-isolation. And it sounds like those audio tours at the Met and things that maybe people don't necessarily, um, discover right away when they visit the Met's website, that sounds like a kind of perfect example, but is there, there anything else that you'd, um, want to share? Yeah,
3: you know, I've been really into dance videos. Um, There's something like Martha Graham's dancers had put a video, like there's archives of dance companies have put them online. Sometimes it's even just trailers. Uh, Some of them are dancer Instagram accounts. And there is something about the lack of words and just pure body movement that i find appealing like as a writer i'm bombarded with words all day and i feel like with the coronavirus with these trump pressers and the governor's presser and the mayor's presser like i'm just inundated with language and i just kind of want to get away from that and just see see people and seeing people move like i just find that really i find that really satisfying right now
2: michael uh, th- it doesn't have to be art per se, right? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, TV, actually, I mean, it's, it's obviously cliche to talk about the golden age of TV, but indeed, um, my brilliant friend on HBO, I think is is brilliant. Um, it's an adaptation of the elena ferrante um trilogy and uh, i haven't finished it uh this season yet but um i think it's brilliant i'm i not only think it's brilliantly done but i'm so grateful that it's completely italian made and not there's not a fingerprint of america involved i'm incredibly grateful for that um i just finished watching the four-part netflix series unorthodox which is based on um a woman who uh, presumably got out of, you know, uh, the Hasidic community in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, your neighborhood, um, that I think was, was incredibly well done as well. Um, I could also recommend a couple podcasts, but, um, you know, but those are a couple of things that have been highlights for me over the last couple of weeks. Amazing. And, and Patty, uh, there were some things that you, that sparked a little
1: joy <laughs> for you?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, one thing that, came across my desk uh, yesterday was Pete Wells' uh, review of um, a sheep video. So Pete Wells is the uh, dining critic for the New York Times and uh, uh, he doesn't have that many restaurants to review right now. So he reviewed a six hour long sheep video. Um, And I think my favorite line from the review was, with its irregular rhythm of sheep vocalizations, Some of them say bah, but not all of them. Punctuated by calls from an occasional duck or crow, the documentary comes close to embodying Brian Eno's description of ambient music. As ignorable as it is, interesting. (laughs) Nice. Oh my God, I should
3: review the San Diego Zoo's koala page, which I check on regularly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Please, that would be... (laughs)
0: Yeah, I thought... I thought it was pretty good. Um, Yeah, and there were just a couple other things. Um, There's a 99% uh, podcast, uh, or 99% Invisible podcast called This Is Chance, um, which uh, was published maybe a couple weeks ago, and it's about Jeannie Chance, a radiocaster based in Anchorage, Alaska, um, who uh, brought... The city together in 1964, after the second largest earthquake in the city's history, killed 115 people and it injured many more. And the take home point that I took from this particular um, podcast was that in times of crisis, collaboration is just like what we do, it's human nature, and therefore a reliable outcome. And I needed to hear that because, you know. Carolina, like you, I, I end up uh, absorbing some of these Trump pressers and other materialists deeply depressing, and I need to have something to hold on to. So. Yes.
2: <laughs> By the way, my, my mantra to everybody, to whatever extent they will hear it, is, don't watch or listen to the news. <laughs> I know that's kind of um, irreconcilable for most people, but um, but that's the healthiest way to stay sane.
0: You know, it's, it's true. I mean, you kind of have, to, I, I feel like we, I don't know how not to look at the news, but I definitely have to limit uh, my consumption of it, which uh, actually my last uh, recommendation is the, uh, the article that ran in the New York Times last week, The Weirdly Enduring Appeal of Weird Al Yankovic, mm-hmm. who is not, you know, my favorite musician in the world, but this particular profile is just so beautiful. I think it's like, first of all, if you like writing at all, like the, it's just such a well-structured Peace. it's really incredible. And it's about loneliness and togetherness and the kind of joy of tr- finding your tribe. And it's just the perfect, the perfect article for a quarantine. Nice. Yes. Yeah.
1: You know, just on a, like, <clears throat> The last podcast we did um, shortly after that, I think I, you know, was confronted with all of the the bills and rent and everything that I had to pay and just had a kind of existential freak out, you know, wondering how, you know, we were going to get through this financially, um, you know, and it, the, the thing that's been surprising over the last two weeks is um, I've been able to make some sort of unexpected sales of artwork through Postmaster's Gallery to one collector who just sort of inquired through Twitter, and another one was related to a series of drawings that I had done for The Baffler. And I don't mean to out Magda on this, but I think she tweeted the other day that, you know, she's like, who knew that you could sell basically unsellable art during the middle of a pandemic? And. <laughs> political drawings. I saw
3: that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah,
1: And so, you know, it, it's been a huge relief um, and, and unexpected because, you know, it's, it's been, it was hard making sales before the pandemic. And, you know, I, it's, there, there's been other inquiries from artists that I know. I literally just got an email from a friend asking if it might be possible to buy a piece of artwork I sold a small portrait to some artist friends, and I, you know, I don't know where their generosity is coming from, or if I've been that transparently freaking out, you know, on social media about, you know, how sort of difficult it is at this moment, um, because it, it's it is very hard to find other work to support my artistic practice, obviously. Um, so it's been a huge r- relief that's you know allowed me to just be able to focus on the work that I am doing in the studio. And, you know, to that end, another small source of joy is, you know, Patty and I launched uh, a Patreon campaign to just, you know, maybe make a little bit of money uh, to support this work that we're doing uh, after, you know, starting the podcast back up again. And it's been wonderful to see, you know, like 31 people contribute some money uh to what we do. And, and, you know, Michael, I know you also have a Patreon for your podcast as well. And I, you know, I hope people will contribute in that kind of small way if they can, um, to keep these, you know, uh, podcasts alive. And, and yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah. I wanted to add to that just a little bit that this was, uh, this was something that I too, um, really got a lot of, um, joy from and relief and all of those things. And, you know, for our listeners, this is something that we really like, it literally every time we got a new Patreon subscriber, we were texting each other and we were excited because that like, for us, that's, you know, we're we're not in this to make uh, a lot of money. Obviously we're not going to, but like this was something that just, I think, really gave us the freedom to do this. Uh, And that that was just, it's really exciting.
1: And it's incredible this, you know, all four of us in this conversation in some way do rely on subscribers, whether Carolina, it's, you know, the LA Times, especially now that there's a decline in advertising revenue from corporate sponsorship that, you know, it really is about the readers and Same thing, Michael, with the conversation podcast, having people contribute something. You know, I think, you know, some of our more popular episodes maybe had 3,000 listens or something. And if, you know, if we get a hundred people to contribute something, you know, it's going to go a long way in making sure that we do this, you know, at the bare minimum, a couple of times a year, several, you know, a few times a year, and we'd like to do it, you know, monthly. And, you know, on some level, it would be a great thing to do every two weeks, but we're not quite there yet, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah
0: and but i do think that the patreon um campaign really uh i think solidified what i had heard in that uh podcast this is chance where like in uh times of crisis and it's really not just the the patreon campaign i think we're seeing it around but in times of crisis collaboration really is something that we we do do mm-hmm. um and that's I something I, it
3: is, it has been interesting to see people come together in really interesting ways during Yeah, and
1: it's it's you know, I, I can be critical sometimes of crowdsourcing because it's it's like we're passing around the same kind of tin cup sometimes. But you know, if that's what it takes right now, we have to do it. You know, I just became a member of Hyperallergic. you know, I was sort of joking that they they only have an emerging artist category and it's like sixty dollars a year. So I was like, hmm. Maybe I'll go as a mid-career artist and pay seventy dollars this year, but you know that's pretty much half my 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 take of uh, the first month's Patreon for Explain Me.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's very point transparent point. of you. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I would, I try to support the places I read because I feel like you know I'm getting something out of that. So.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to thank you both, Michael and Carolina, for taking some time to talk with us about so many sort of subjects that, that, you know, I think the museum situation could probably get its own episode at some point. But, um, you know, this was great to have you both
2: on. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to all you guys.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Likewise.
0: All right. We will talk soon.